and welcome to this week's Read All About It. I'm Shusi. And I'm Yuri Vitachi. Now, last week we had some fun talking about uh, novels with the theme of art. Uh, this week we're going to have a, a different theme with some different novels. Yes, and it's my turn to start, so I will begin with The Artist of Disappearance by Anita So we've Desai. got the word artist in it. Is it about Yes, art? but not really. It's really about... It, these are three novellas, and Anita Desai, of course, is a very well-known novelist. Oh, she's wonderful. Uh, and she's, she's a beautiful writer, right? Um, but she, it's three novellas set in India, and in a way, they're about what we would call the walking wounded, characters whose lives are sort of uninspired or beaten down or constrained in some way. But each is offered a glimmer of something that transforms life for a moment in their uninspired existence. Um, and then the, these are the stories of what happens after that. You know, um, The New York Times has said that Anita's Desai's work avoids the trafficking of the delicious and the malicious, which um, they claim is often seen in much fiction uh, about India. And they use the example of mangoes, how mangoes get overused <laughs> as a symbol. Okay. So here, the, the, the three um, novellas, in, and the, the novella is a very interesting form because it's sort of like a long story, but not quite as tight as a story. It's a little bit looser, has got more of what a novel might have, but it isn't as quite as expansive as a novel. So um, the three are, the first one is The Museum of Final Journey. So again, we have a little bit of an art theme, but not really. And uh, the Washington Post called this a little toothache of a story because it's about this um, British junior subdivisional officer in India, and he's out in the hinterland somewhere. And what he always wanted to do is he wanted to follow in his father's footstep and become, you know, a civil servant and a government official in overseas so that he would have a good civil service career. But he gets out and he finds, you know, there are mosquitoes around, you know, he's living in this horrible little circuit house, you know, he's in the middle of nowhere, and he misses the city. And and this is his life. And it, it all kind of seems really depressing and despairing until one day this little gnome of a man comes along to him and says, sir, you've got to come and see this museum. That, that sounds very interesting. have left, Especially yes. if you're talking to someone who's often described as a gnome of a man myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and he's taken to this place, which... Um, so this is um, a guy who's kind of a caretaker of a, a, of a formerly wealthy woman who's now disappeared. She's, she's gone away um, to uh, Varanasi, you know, in Uttar Pradesh, and he thinks to die. And she's left behind this museum. Her son has disappeared, and in all his travels, he kept sending back over the years things from Southeast Asia, from the Middle East, from China, from Japan, from everywhere. And, now, and she's turned it into this like never-ending museum in this vast house that they have. And it's almost like going into an Escher painting, you know. <laughs> he keeps going further and seeing more and seeing more. And the guy says to him, you know, please, sir, we, we don't have any money. We don't have any way of taking care of this. Uh, if the government doesn't step in and do something, it's all going to just disappear. And he's walking through this thinking, can I do something about this? Can I do something about this? And, you know, he keeps wanting to stop and look at something more. But the, the little man just keeps, you know, moving him along until... He gets to the elephant, which was the last gift that the son had sent 
to the woman. And they're, they're, they're using up all their money, everything they have to just keep this elephant. It's a live alive. elephant? A live elephant. Wow, it does sound an unusual story. Yes, and I won't tell you how it ends. <laughs> right, thank you. I hate spoilers. <laughs> we'll just leave No spoilers that. in this show. Yes. And the next novella is something, and this one is probably my favorite one. It's called Translator Translated. And it's about a woman named Prima who is in New Delhi teaching at a woman's college. She's teaching English literature in a woman's college, in a minor woman's college. And she's kind of this middle-aged, beaten-down sort of woman where nothing exciting has happened in her life. And then she goes to a, a school reunion. And then she sees Tara, the girl that she worshipped when she was young, who was a very successful woman. And she's followed her career because this woman is now the successful publisher of a press. And, you know, and she's always written up in the news. And as a result of their meeting, she's surprised to find that Tara remembers who she is. She's this colorless kind of girl, you know. And um, Tara remembers her and she's holding a book, you know, um, uh, Prima's holding a book and it falls out of her bag. And, and Tara, being a publisher, picks up and says, oh, what is this? And, and it's, in a, it's in one of the indigenous languages, Oriya. I don't even know this language. I guess it's a fairly small language. Um, but it's a, it's a novel in this language. And she says, you know how to read this? And all of a sudden, she starts to see herself as somebody more important because she did go and study this language. It was her mother's language. And she had actually studied it. She, she read the work of this um, novelist there. Um, and she's read this woman, Survana Sur Devi, who is sort of the leading novelist in this language. And so Tara says to her, well, why don't you translate it and we can publish it? And she thinks, oh, my God, I've got a new career. <laughs> and for a moment there, her life suddenly looks so much rosier. Again, I won't tell you what happens because you've got to read this. I tell you, I read this book nonstop. I got up one morning. I started reading. I could not put it down. It is so engrossingly written. We're talking about uh, the latest book by Anita Desai, which is uh, a trilogy of, uh, of novellas. And uh, it's it's got the best reviews uh, of, of her work for ages since Feasting Fasting. Yes, it has. And there is, of course, the title story, which is The Artist of Disappearance, about this very reclusive artist. And it's also about the meaning of art. And we're in Musori, a resort in the Himalayan foothills. The house is quite a distance away from uh, the city centre. And it was originally built as a, a hunting lodge by um, this man's grandfather. So he's known as this reclusive artist. And in the background, there's just this like charred remains of the house that had burnt down. And he just sits there and does his art that nobody ever sees. And there's a caretaker who's been with his family a long time. His mother has long disappeared, is gone, you know, and he's by himself. His parents are, are long gone. And he's just by himself in this in this sort of out, out in nature doing some kind of art, okay? So what happens is that... Um, this other uh, sort of from, from New Delhi, this uh, filmmaking crew comes along and they want to do a documentary about the effects of um, uh, how time has devastated the Himalayas and how, you know, we're, we're now in, in a place about environmental de degradation, you know. And one of the uh, 
people on the team stumbles onto the, the main character's name, Ravi, stumbles upon this strange garden that she realized that it has to be man-made. It's very artistic. And she thinks, oh, I've got to find him and, you know, shoot him and, you know, interview him and all that. And so they, they try to get a hold of him and he just hides. He refuses to do it. Part of the novella is also about his background, how he ended up like this. And it's a, it's a compelling, compelling read. And again, not to be a spoiler of the ending, you have to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd like to give you a taster. You see, Ravi, he refuses to have anything to do with the film crew. So what he does is that he hides away and he begins to look for matchboxes to make patterns that he keeps inside them. And here's what he says. Lying open, they revealed themselves like constellations in the night. Shut in a box, they became invisible, and he could carry them on him, keep them to himself. No one would know. So that was by Anita Desai, The Artist of Disappearance, and that was from the title novella. Today I've bought a book which is uh, is similar in a sense. In fact, it's a uh, yours was uh, three novellas in one book. Uh, this is a is a is a sort of trilogy in that it started off as a trilogy, but it was so popular they added a fourth volume. So um, there's not really a comfortable word for a trilogy <laughs> plus one, is yes. there? Not yet. I'm sure someone will come up with one. Um, this is the the, the the Sean Duffy trilogy, it's often known as, and it's also about a dis- disaffected ordinary person, an ordinary person with uh, with huge uh, pressures on them, uh, pretty much like uh, like the three stories in uh, in uh, the book by Anita Desai we were just talking about. The, uh, the Sean Duffy series is by Adrian McKinty, who's an Irish novelist. And um, they're sort of detective stories in a sense, but um, they're wonderfully powerful because the police officer they deal with is so unappreciated <laughs> that as soon as you, you read about it, he, you know, his boss doesn't appreciate him, his workmates don't appreciate him, uh, you know, his, his woman doesn't appreciate him. And... Uh, it just speaks to that part in all of us where where we think, uh, you know, what, what? Nobody loves me. Nobody <laughs> loves me. That's right. Yeah. You know, and God doesn't seem to appreciate right. it either because his luck is always bad. And uh, as a as a result, uh, instead of being heroic and noble, he's rather sour. And he uh, he he nips into the evidence room and nicks the drugs and smokes them himself. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> Has so he ever done drugs before? Yeah, so he's a very naughty police <laughs> officer. Uh, and, uh, you know, he drinks too much and he hides drugs in his garden just in case his <laughs> police colleagues turn up and with sniffer dogs and the, the dogs uh, start doing the, 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 the barking that shows that they've found drugs. Uh, he's also the only Catholic living in a Protestant housing estate. Huh. And the whole uh, set of stories is set during what's called the Troubles uh, era. In the uh, 1970s and 1980s, there was uh, a very... Uh, uh, there's almost a civil war in uh, in Northern Ireland. The um, uh, So we've got this police officer who's uh, unappreciated and he's turned rogue in a way. And so he decides he's going to do all this his job in his own way. So he breaks all the rules and that just makes him more criticised by his uh, his bosses. And yet we find that doing it the wrong way actually gets uh, 
gets great results. So it's a, it's a compelling read. The, uh, the first uh, book in the series is called The Cold, Cold Ground. And um, uh, if you look that up, you can uh, easily find the, the, the rest of the set. Um, now, normally, uh, I'm a great fan of books as opposed to electronic things. But there's a wonderful audiobook series of this. And um, it's, uh, all the books are read by a wonderful Irish actor called uh, uh, Gerard Doyle. Now, uh, now um, he does all the voices of not just an Irish accent, but the different regional Irish accents. And one will be a Dublin and one will be a wow. Carrick Fergus yes. and, and so on. Yeah. So he's talking like this all the time. And it's like very <laughs> enchanting. Now, I'm, a, I'm allowed to be rude to Irish people because uh, I'm married to an Irish person. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it's hilarious, the, 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 the Irish way of relating. Okay, but so is it a detective story in any way? Is there a mystery that gets solved? Uh, yes, it's a, these are in many ways classic uh, mystery stories. In the, do you remember Elmore Leonard? Oh, of course. Yeah, yes. So that, that would be sort of the ultimate sort of all in American accents, uh, Brooklyn or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is the, the Irish uh, equivalent of that. So deep Irish accents, deep Irish culture. And yet there's a, there's a mysteries to be solved. Uh, the other thing is that the writer, Adrian McKinty, um, he's actually quite a literary writer. Uh, mm. So um, it's not just genre writing in the normal sense. It's actually quite, quite deep. And I can see him winning literary prizes as yes. well. But detective novels often do fall over into that literary side too. I think of things like the Maltese Falcon, for example. Uh, I think a lot of people who, who are studying sort of to be literary writers do read a lot of detective fiction. That's right. I think it's because the detective fiction is about it's about death and passion. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and any book about death is really about life. Yes, and so of we're, we're talking about these very deep things. And so, so the detective genre does sort of rise up into this literary area. And that's definitely true of Adrian McKinty. Okay, so can you tell me the story? Well, you know, Policeman's Day is interesting because it's completely boring <laughs> most of the time. You're sitting at desk, you're doing your paperwork, and you're, you're, you're driven out of your mind, So, which is why you sneak over to the evidence room and smoke something interesting you find there. It's been confiscated. And then suddenly it's incredibly exciting because there's a serial murderer on the, on, on the loose, uh -huh. and you have, to, you have to track him down. And then it's incredibly boring again because your boss says... Do the paperwork and every single visit, every single interview, every single investigation has to be uh, written out in, in detail. And then, of course, there's all the biases, you know. Uh, he's a Catholic, he's a Protestant, so, um, so, so who's going to be cut some slack and who isn't going to be cut some slack? Um, so there's all the pressures of being unappreciated. Uh, in fact, this, these novels uh, are attractive to office workers, I think, because they'll identify <laughs> yes. with all the sort of... Sort of boredom, politics, yes. boredom, and uh, feeling unappreciated there. But of course, um, at the uh, at the heart of each novel is trying to find a killer, and uh, you know, and again, there's this sourness that runs through the novel. So um, you know, you, you think he'll probably find the killer, but they won't give him the credit. Yes. You know, they'll, they'll give yeah. the credit to somebody else His instead. Boss, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> yes, the boss mm -hmm. will take the credit. So uh, we're talking about the Sean Duffy novels by uh, Patrick McGinty. So what makes this different from other detective novels that makes it, you know, compelling for us to read? Well, there's the, there's, there's the voice of the, uh, 
of the uh, protagonist, uh, uh, which is this rich Irish brogue. There's the uh, literary nature of the stories, which are just a cut above the, the standard um, uh, detective genre stories. And, uh, and uh, there's the setting. Uh, there's a powerful setting in the period of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, so you've got all this politics. You know, Mrs Thatcher is a character ah, that yes, appears in one go. of the stories, <laughs> you know. So it's very powerfully rooted in real life. So all these things put together make a make for a beautiful trilogy, a uh, four-part trilogy. A four-part trilogy. We've got to find a word for that. Okay, so this is a detective novel s- series, essentially. Um, so how well is it doing on the charts and all that? Is it, is it selling well? Is it a bestseller? Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely doing very well. He's, he's on his 16th book now. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, <laughs> so a long line of, of bestsellers. And, uh, and he knows what he's talking about. He was actually born in Belfast in the, in the 60s and grew up on a, on a council estate in a place called Carrickfergus, uh, which is where the, the books are set. So they're very, very vivid and real. Um, he studied, the writer, Adrian McKinty, studied law. So, so he knows about the uh, the, the legal ramifications of uh, of uh, crime and arrests, uh, but he's also um, it's it's nice he studied law and uh, and then chose not to do it, which always seems. To I me always very, like that. Yeah, you like people who, <laughs> yes, who could be lawyers yes. but choose but not choose to not be for to some be. reason. Yes. Do you think it would translate to a TV series or television or movie of some kind? Yeah, well, I mean, all detective novels translate well into, into well, TV, yeah. don't they? Um, there's something about the the, the, the the archetypal passions that make good TV because uh, because they you know everybody identifies with love and death. I mean mm-hmm. those are our, our primary interests in life. But the detective as a figure also is very interesting. I, you know, when you were talking about this book, it reminded me a little bit of Broadchurch. I think mm-hmm. that television series, which is also kind of weird and you know he's not exactly a glamorous detective you know that's right and detectives always have to be two things have to happen one one he has to be kind of wounded in some way definitely and here this sour irishman is mm-hmm. definitely wounded and the other thing is he has to be off the case yes. he has to have a boss who says okay you're off the case Paddy, you're off the case <laughs> yeah. and then he goes and solves it you know? yes these are these are tropes of course mm-hmm. but they're they're well-loved tropes and they're, they're there for a reason so I, i'm curious because this is set in, in a very historical and you know political time in Northern Ireland do you think a book needs that but it's like on television or on a movie like Broadchurch is you know it's just some seaside town and the visuals sort of do it for you I think the time and place is important because it's uh, it lends vividness and reality and detail to the story uh, you can tell a made-up town from a from a real town so it helps the author but it also helps the the, the the viewer or, or reader or listener to actually visualize in in their head so so time and place rooting it in reality does help yeah i sort of think so because you know we need our imagination to be stimulated by that it was sort of why i liked anita desai's book for the same reason it's very specific to specific locations in india yes yeah, time and place is, is good a sense of time a sense of place is actually uh, pretty much uh, uh, mandatory today well, see what you think. Uh, we've been talking about the Sean Duffy series. It's uh, it's a, a series by uh, Adrian McKinty, an Irish author, and the first volume in the series is called The Cold, Cold Ground. Okay, so it's classic time, and this week we have The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald, a book that came out in 1925, just before the stock market went south. 
Now, I hope you don't mind, but I really hate this book. Oh, really? But, <laughs> but it's still, it's, but I will admit that it's, uh, it's on the list of classics. And in fact, it has been called possibly the great American novel. Although, you know, the critics are a bit cagey about that. But, uh, but persuade me, why is it so good? It is an American dream novel at, at heart. I mean, it, and it, a critique of it, of course, um, that all men are created equal. Because, of course, they're not. Not if you're Gatsby. Not if you're somebody who pines after this beautiful woman from a different class. And it speaks to the question of class in America, the, the country where everybody goes, oh, well, no, it's a democracy here. We don't have a monarchy. We don't have a hello, you know, class is alive and well in America. And I think that's why it resonates so much. Mm. Well, it didn't at first, did it? Because it, it's a sad story of a guy who falls in with some rich people and resents the fact that they have everything and he has nothing. And when it came out, it sold it sold 20,000 copies in its first year, which is which is not great. I mean, you, no, you and I can beat that. No, it wasn't a huge, huge, huge success <laughs> when it first came out. But I think over time, it, it resonates because I think it, it's very, you know, uh, pre- re- relevant mm. even today. I mean, mm. if you look at what's happened on Wall Street, if you look at what's been happening with you know the uh, subprime mortgage and and all the things that further push apart the rich and the poor, I think this very much speaks to it. And the idea that this grand opulence, this great you know wealth that he amasses as Gatsby, and he builds this impossible house, you know, in order just to at heart try to win Daisy back. But really, it's about feeling like you belong, and he never will, of course. Yes, it's uh, it's interesting novel. I mean, Fitzgerald actually died fairly miserable. He, oh, totally. It yes. wasn't a, the novel was not a hit, and uh, and by the time of his death, he hadn't really made any money out of it. Not hugely. Uh, he had he had gone over to Hollywood to 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 write, and that's how he made some money. And he was married to Zelda, of course, who was very much a model, we think, for Daisy Buchanan, you know, the, the sort of spoilt rich girl who expects everything. And yet after his death, the book became a phenomenon. Now there are, there are radio plays, there are movies. There so are, many movies, there are all yes. All sorts of things, aren't they, coming mm-hmm. out of it, and songs inspired by it, and uh, uh, TV adaptions, numerous stage adaptions, and all high school children are made to you read it. You have to read it, yeah. But I think what's interesting also is the figure of Nick Carraway, because this is an interesting novel we forget sometimes. It's a first-person novel, and it's told by Nick. And it opens on Nick saying that he remembers his father's advice, which is, whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. So on some level, it's kind of a moral tale. And I think moral tales actually seem to last rather well. Yes. And uh, they, they, when they become a classic, the, they have to be reinterpreted in new ways. So I do recommend, especially for youngsters reading this who are forced to read this part <laughs> at school, there's a wonderful Baz Luhrmann movie made of it, uh, just called The Great Gatsby, and came out in twenty. 20- 13 mm-hmm. and uh, it starts really cool actors there's, it there's does, Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio Toby Maguire uh, Kerry Mulligan who's just absolutely gorgeous and uh, it's it's a very cheeky adaption so even though it's set in the original uh, time period uh, the 1920s you know it includes like rap music they find yes. ways of putting uh-huh. in all sorts of mm-hmm. modern things well why don't you like it do you think it's maybe too old-fashioned is it dated 
Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a. It's a. It's a sad story of a young man who who falls in with this guy Jay Gatsby and goes to these wonderful, rich, extravagant parties. But he realizes that Gatsby, despite having everything he could possibly want, is unhappy because of his relationship with the woman uh, he loves um, not working out. So it's a. It's a sad, rather mournful tale. Uh, doesn't have much. Um, much much appeal to me in that sense. I see. It's a depressing. Oh, but life was depressing. It was just before the depression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that makes it such a classic is the way Fitzgerald writes. He writes with great empathy for all his characters, even the most despicable ones, you know. And in a way, too, because Nick Carraway is the narrator, who's sort of the alien alias, I guess, for, for Fitzgerald, um, he's looking on somebody like Gatsby. But at the end of the novel, you know, he's the only person who who's cares about Gatsby as a human being. Everybody else just likes Gatsby because he throws great parties and they're, they're only fair-weather friends. Um, and I think that that empathy that uh, Fitzgerald was able to introduce makes his characters very believable and makes them all very human and real. I think that's true. So it's it's really about relationships and loyalty and money is, is a false route to happiness because, uh, in fact, it's not about the money at all. And, in fact, there was a, there's a movie out last year called Affluenza, which was based on uh, oh. The Great Gatsby, but it was set among Long Island teenagers... In, yeah, the, uh, in the, the same. <laughs> yeah, in the 2008 um, economic recession. So you've got these these rich kids in modern America, uh, you know, playing with relationships and things, and then suddenly the the bottom dropping out of the stock market and their mm. parents losing all their money. So it does have a modern relevance there, I think. I think it still continues to have a relevance. I mean, for me, it is a book that I came to love and re- repeatedly go back to, and I'm never disappointed. And uh, Gatsby actually does. Uh, follow with what we've been talking about with our previous two books. Yes, it does. You know, sort of injured heroes. Injured people, yeah. Well, it sets a relief, too, against all the other people in the book who seem to be more successful because um, at the end of the novel, um, Nick is 30 now and he's considering what this is all meant. And he runs into Tom Buchanan, the husband of Daisy. And he, he thinks about them as careless people, people who just don't care about how many people they trample over or what happened. And at one point he says, I felt suddenly as if I was talking to a child. So it does mean, I think, on some level that even though these damaged lives are are so painful to look at in literature, they also send up something about what humanity is about and, and and why empathy is important and what what is more meaningful in life in the end? And also, we all feel like damaged people, don't we? we none of us feels perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, yes. we're all we're, yeah. all we're wounded here as ourselves, sort of heading for uh, perfection. Today, we've been talking about The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and our new books were The Artist of Disappearance by Anita Desai and The Cold, Cold Ground by Adrian McKinty. Join us next week if you can. Bye bye. Thank you.